Hi everyone, welcome to this episode of the Incomplete Thoughts podcast. Uh, today's episode is going to be logic gates, uh, specifically biological logic gates. And uh, right from the very beginning, I want to preface saying that I won't be talking about science and biology all the time. It's just that these topics are very easy for me to explain, and this one is going to be a bit more easy to understand compared to, say, the state space one of last week. So I hope you're able to follow this. So logic gates are essentially the basic fundamental unit of a computer or a digital circuit, really. Uh, They're typically comprised of two inputs that undergo some kind of logical operation to then yield a single logical output, typically a Boolean or a uh, binary uh, value or binary type. That's either true or false or one or zero. And then through the incorporation of millions of these, you are able to do very complex computer calculations. In fact, our computers are made up of billions of these that all work together to do very complex things like play Minecraft. And speaking of Minecraft, Minecraft has this uh, material known as redstone. And through redstone, you're able to also produce these logic gates. And in the game, people have made calculators, very basic computers, and even clocks using these logic gates. So typically, logic gates are constructed using transistors, but they can use magnets, fluids, lights, really many different materials. Um, And in the paper that we'll be talking about later, scientists were able to use DNA as uh, logic gates. So in this episode, I'm going to be talking about really two ideas. One is biological logic gates as they exist right now in the context of gene regulatory networks. And later in the episode, I'm going to be talking about how these researchers a couple years ago were able to artificially or synthetically produce foldable DNA that was also able to uh, perform very basic logical operations. So logic gates, like I said, are the basic fundamental computational unit. Uh, Some of the simple ones, I'm not going to be going through all of them, are AND, OR, XOR, um, NAND gates. Essentially, an AND logical gate is one that requires input 1 and input 2 to produce the output, um, hence the name AND. Um, OR requires input 1 or input 2 to produce the output. It could either have input 1 or input 2, or it could have both input 1 and input 2 to produce the output. So an OR can act very similar to an AND, but it's very different because it just needs one. However, XOR, or exclusive OR, I believe is the name, um, kind of is a modification of that OR gate, where in the OR gate you can have either one or two or both. XOR only allows one of the inputs to result or produce the output. So you can get input one or input two, but you can't have both input one and input two to produce the output. And finally, the next simple or the last simple logic gate I want to talk about is the NAND gate, which is kind of like the opposite of uh, the AND gate. Whereas the AND gate requires input one to be on and input two to be on to produce output, a NAND gate requires input one to be off and input two to be off. So it's very similar, very different. These are some of the basic logic gates. There are other things like half adders um, and other logical gates. Uh, so kind of talking about and thinking about logic gates in a biological context, uh, the easiest way to view this is through gene regulatory networks. Uh, these are essentially genes interacting with other genes to produce 
or affect other genes. Uh, and the simplest version of this is known as the feed-forward loop motif. Uh, this is one of the most common ones, um, and it's really the simplest one because it requires only three nodes, nodes being genes, proteins, really anything that interacts with each other. And it has three regulatory interactions. So the first one is um, X interacts with Y, and the second interaction is Y interacts with Z. However, the third one is X interacts directly with Z. So back in a genetic context, uh, typically a transcription factor X interacts with a transcription factor Y in order to regulate gene Z. Uh, but transcription factor X can also interact with Z promoter to activate gene Z itself. So the former pathway is called the delayed or the indirect pathway, while the latter is known as the direct pathway. And the transcription factors X and Y can also integrate at the Z promoter either through an AND gate where both X and Y are required or through an OR gate where X or Y is sufficient to activate promoter Z. Uh, both of these integrations are often seen in nature. However, they confer very distinct properties uh, to the system. So a feed-forward loop that uses an AND gate produces something known as like a time delay where there is a delay in the on step but no delay in the off step. Um, and this is the case because you need both X and Y to produce the output. And unless you have X and Y produced at the same time, there's always gonna be that delay where X binds first and then you gotta wait a bit and then Y binds next to produce the output. However, as soon as one of these um, transcription factors bounces off of the promoter, you get a very fast off step with no delay, right? The transcription factor turns off right away because you no longer have both X and Y. However, a feed for loop using an OR gate uh, demonstrates kind of the opposite behavior where you have this rapid activation of a process, but the inactivation takes a bit more time, right? Um, this is very intuitive to think about if you spend some time, um, it's fast to activate because either X or Y is enough to activate it. However, in order to turn it off, both of them need to be gone, right? And it might take a while for both X and Y to kind of disappear. So where is this really seen? Well, the AND feed-forward loop or the AND gate feed-forward loop network is often seen in what is known as differentiation. And this is like the process where cells become more mature, they become more specific. Um, and this is the case because it allows signals to be passed if and only if the input signals are steady and persistent. Uh, and this kind of prevents cells from differentiating too early when they're not ready, when they shouldn't be. All right, you wouldn't want a cell to differentiate when it's not ready, so you want all the cues to be present for them to actually move on to the next step. On the other hand, OR feed-forward loop networks um, are very different. They are often seen in systems that tend to have inputs that fluctuate very rapidly. And a very easy example of this is just thinking about stress um, and stress to an organism. Um, in a very single cell organism way, and if you don't view stress from an anxiety and depression point of view that we typically think of when we think of humans, um, when it comes to stress, it's better to run away than it is to wait for yourself to be sure. When you see a snake, it's better to jump away from the snake than it is to like wait and take your time to really think about, is that snake poisonous? Because from a biological or evolutionary standpoint, you want to pass on your genes. It's better to be more vigilant 
so you can pass off pass on your genes than it is to be not as vigilant and take that risk of possibly dying so one example of this is e coli and their flagella motor protein assembly uh, unit uh, flagella is essentially a tail that is at the end of the cell and that helps them move around in their environment kind of like a, a paddle or a row uh, that you see with a boat right and uh, when it comes to e coli you could think of certain environmental stressors like say temperature osmotic stress carbon starvation maybe oxygen things that things that fluctuate rapidly and are stressful to e coli it's better for e coli to swim away and only stop swimming when the stress factors are all absent for an extended period of time which would signify that the new environment is safe right if we had an and gate that e coli would be dead in a heartbeat quite honestly right so these basic logical feed forward loop networks um, they have different functions and as you add more interactions and you have very specific uh, conformational changes you can produce a very complex system dynamics and what we often see is through the incorporation and i said this last episode through the incorporation of very simple rules in an environment of other simple rules you could produce very complex behaviors so i hope that made sense um and slash or feed for loops are very basic you see them almost everywhere you could think of you could think of examples in a non-biological context pretty quite easily um However, that's just to kind of give you an idea and kind of shift your perspective when it comes to gene interactions. Now, shifting gears again uh, from current natural biological perspective to possible future application, uh, a paper came out, uh, I can't remember the year, but a couple years ago, and it essentially described the production and application of DNA origami. Um, and DNA origami is basically this nanoscale folding of DNA to create meaningful structures that can then interact with other proteins and possibly other DNA origami nanorobots to produce some kind of conformational change that allows some output to occur. So upon some kind of protein cue, the nanorobots undergo some kind of conformational change into an active state that could then interact with maybe an another adjacent nanorobot that can then trigger some kind of effector response and in this paper they were able to emulate logical and or XOR half adders uh, NAND gates and some other NOT gates that are kind of looting me right now and they were able to show that they could do very basic computing within blood that would be as efficient as what they saw um, in their cockroach model which, which, which was quite exciting quite exciting because of the possible human application right they were able to confirm that their gate architectures were also able to um, change their shape and properly function by using what is known as uh, flow cytometry analysis which is essentially you suspend your cell in a fluid and you drop that cell and you essentially shoot a laser and that laser measures fluorescence or some kind of tag that you've attached to uh, the cell to then count count specific proteins that are present in that cell or specific cell markers um, to give you an idea of whether or not the tagged robots that they counted 
was the same as the tagged robots that they predicted. However, it was also worth noting that in their uh, cockroach model, uh, the complexity um, is definitely going to be limited. Um, the complexity of the biological, biochemical dynamics is definitely going to be limited um, in humans, but you can definitely scale this up. And though these, this architecture uses a basic processing unit of like one bit, which is only capable of addressing two to the power of one bytes of information, so two bytes of information, uh, this technique is uh, a step forward and a step forward specifically towards the advancement of personalized medicine. And the authors even propose that they could um, exceed the capacity of older 8 computers like the, I believe, Atari, Atari 800, uh, which would mean that you could do more complex processing of the system, allowing for more input variables to be accounted for and, and more specific uh, response to be uh, produced. And what's really cool, and I think this is where, I mean, I really didn't talk about the methods of this paper, but what I'm really fascinated by in this paper is that it's very much a different take on nanotech. Um, nanotech typically is like these nanocarbon scale robots that do very basic things. This is where we use actual DNA, DNA that folds and produces a very specific shape that can then interact with other proteins and other DNA robots to produce some kind of effective uh response and what this design could be used for it could be useful for retrieving complex information about very specific biochemical possibly physiological processes within the cell which could then be used as a bi um, biological and diagnostic tool um, and perhaps i think this is where the greatest benefit would come would be more complex control over therapeutic models molecules within a cell and allow the rapid dynamically control of therapeutic models or pathways in response to various problems inside a cell, which would kind of offer an alternative to the current view of, like I said, nanotech in personalized medicine. This was a few years ago. I have not updated or have not checked if they have released an update on their paper, but it was very much an interesting idea. Um, in this podcast, I kind of wanted to give you an perspective on how to view biological or logic aids in a biological perspective um, in one that easily exists already through these gene regulatory networks and one that can be possibly be applied to humans in the future. Um, with that said, uh, if you have any questions, if you have any suggestions for future episodes, if you want to reach me, my contact information is in the description. Uh, with that said, I think that's all. The episode went a bit longer than expected, as usual, but I hope you enjoyed. Plus Ultra, and I'll see you next time.